John 1, verse 39. And we're going to get there, and we're going to get there after a while. So just hold your finger in there. We're not going to be there right away. And what we're going to do today is a word study. We're going to pick a certain word out of the Bible, and we're going to study what it means in the application to you. And hopefully the word we study has some relevance to your life. Now, just as a teaser, the word I'm going to start with starts with the letter A. Now, if you're on 139, you quickly skim through it. You'll see the only word in there that starts with the letter A is about. No, we're not going to do a word study on the word about. But I don't like black and white, so I gave it a little bit of color. And this is a red color. Well, it's not quite red. It's more a scarlet color. So we're going to call this word that we're going to talk about a scarlet A. Or we're going to talk about the scarlet letter. Ooh, now you're in your mind, you're thinking about what could this word be? Well, with apologies to Nathaniel Hawthorne, Hester, and Reverend Dimsdale, we are not going to be talking about adultery. No, I've got another word in mind, another word that's more universal than adultery, a word that's much more subtle. Adultery comes in, you know what's happening. This word, you don't really know it's happening when it starts. It gradually builds up. The results can be just as tragic, though, as adultery. It gets in and ruins your life and your relationship with God. And it often, people are ashamed that they have this word, and so they typically will try and hide it, much like they'll try and hide adultery. But this word is pervasive. It knows no boundaries. Male nor female doesn't make a difference. Your race, ethnic origin, where you're from, your age, it's totally pervasive throughout all of it. The word we're going to be talking about that starts with a scarlet letter is anxiety. Now that's a word that goes on in front of a lot of people. And when you're going to talk about a word, first you have to define it. You can either define it by giving a definition or you can give an example. In this case, I'll do both. Let me start with the example. This is John. It's not his real name. He's a medical student. Not only a medical student, he's a fourth-year medical student, and this is springtime, which means he has two more rotations. If he completes them both, he'll become a doctor after eight years of college. So the rotation he's going to end up on is psychiatry, and that's very easy. You just sit there and listen to the patient talk. But the current rotation is much more difficult. He's on the rotation of gastroenterology. In gastroenterology, there's a lot of didactic learning, a lot of book work that you have to do, a lot of diseases. And it's very difficult and involves presentations in front of the attendings. But what also makes it more difficult than other things is that it involves procedures that you have to pass. And the particular procedure for today is a colonoscopy. Now, for those of you who don't know what a colonoscopy is, you take a tube about, well, no, you don't have to know how long it is. Anyway, we take that tube. No, you really don't need to know where it goes either. Let's just say it's a long tube that goes in a place where nothing should be put, okay? And the proctor for this is not only just a GI attending, it's the chairman of the Department of Gastroenterology. And he does not have a reputation for being very kind to medical students. And John's grade, not even his grade, but him passing the course, depends upon how well he does this procedure. So the patient is called into the room, the procedure is explained to the patient, signs the appropriate consents, and the patient is prepped and draped in the usual fashion. 
Now, John starts the procedure by inserting the scope, and the patient starts to moan and groan and starts moving. And John now is a little bit anxious because his note, his grade, depends upon this. And so he kind of readjusts the drapes so the patient can see him. He smiles at the patient very gently and says, relax, just relax. So after the scope is introduced, air is introduced to inflate it so you can see where you're going. This causes cramping, and the patient starts kind of different sounds that John has never heard coming from a person, and he starts fidgeting, and John leans over, pats him on the shoulder, and tells him, relax, just relax. Now, as they proceed with the procedure, they have to make tight turns, and every time a tight turn comes around, it causes more discomfort, the patient moves more, makes more noise, and John's getting frustrated at this point, and he keeps saying, relax, just relax. After several more of these turns are made, they finally get to the end, the scope is withdrawn, and the patient gets stressed, leaves the room, the nurse gathers up all the instruments to go sterilize them in the different room, and it's left with just John and the attending in the room. The attending looks at John and says, John, I've been watching you for the last month. You come unprepared to rotations. Your list of differential diagnoses on a disease is pathetic. Your knowledge is substandard. You do not give a good review of systems, and your presentations are almost impossible to follow. And this colonoscopy, that was just the end straw. I am immediately going to the dean's office. I'm going to insist that they expel you from school and that you not be led into any other medical school. You will never become a doctor. Well, John was devastated. Then the attending looks at him in the face and smiles and says, now relax, just relax. Well, you can see you can't just relax. It's much more difficult than that. You can't just tell a person relax and things get better. So let's go ahead and pray. Dear Father, we just thank you for the chance to get together in these very anxious and trying times to talk about this. We know that you wouldn't have us to be anxiety-ridden. We just pray that you'll fill us with the spirit and the knowledge so that, that we just don't have to be troubled by this anymore. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, there are three things I want you to take home from this. Number one, the story was made up. It wasn't true. It was just a story to impress upon you on a point. The second thing I want you to know is that when I was telling the story, you could feel that anxiety building up in your own self, things going wrong, things happening. In fact, that feeling of anxiety is almost universal. Almost everybody has it. In fact, there's a medical term for we give people when they don't have anxiety. And that medical term for a person with no anxiety is dead. And if you prefer the Greek, I believe it's necros from what we get our word necrotic. So all of you have experienced anxiety at some time in your life. In Isaiah's time, God was pouring out his vengeance against the people in verse 34. And in the verse 35, Isaiah comes and he tells the people to have courage that things are going to get better. And he says in Isaiah 35:4, take courage, fear not. Now, is that going to help you if you're full of anxiety and I walk up to you and I say, take courage, fear not? Or is that the same as John telling the patient, hey, relax, just relax? Is there a difference between those two? 
Well, anyway, it's something to think about. I want you to check it away in the back of your brain. And if we get time toward the end of the um, lesson today, we might get back to it. So, anxiety. Let's start out with a medical definition. The medical definition contains three parts. First, it's an abnormal and overwhelming apprehension of fear. And it's marked by three things. Number one, physical signs such as tension, sweating, pulse rate. We'll get back to that. Number two, it's marked by doubt concerning the reality and the nature of the threat. Is the threat as real as I perceive it to be? And number three, it's marked by self-doubt about one's ability to cope with it. So if you want to treat anxiety from a medical standpoint, I'll have to convince you that you on your own can cope with the doubt without anything else, and that the nature of the threat isn't really as bad as you think it is, and that these feelings that you're having of this panic attack aren't real. They're just feelings. That's how we do it medically. This is the book we use. It's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, number five. And you see number five, that means there had to be one, two, three, and four before it. That means they didn't get it right to begin with, and they're trying again. And I'm sure there's going to be a six, seven, and eight coming up in the future as well. But it's the Bible, according to the American Psychiatric Association of Mental Illnesses. And in it, they do talk about anxiety. And there's nine different types of anxiety they come up with, which includes anywhere from separation anxiety, social anxiety, your people, agoraphobia, going outside. Then, of course, number nine here is a catch-all. You can't fit it, the anxiety in anywhere else. You throw it into number nine. So these are the symptoms, and this is a cartoon. This is a person that should have symptoms. He's a caveman sitting on a stone rock, and they're going to do experiments in transportation with him. Now, at this point, he should be pretty uncomfortable. And if you look through this list here, you're going to say, well, I've had a lot of those symptoms in the last month, in the last week, maybe even today. The symptoms are pretty common. The symptoms get more common as you stand up in front of the people that are watching you give a lecture. Whoops, let me back up one. So what are the causes of anxiety? Well, the causes are multiple. One is a genetic cause. I'll see families where everybody in the family is anxious, mother anxious, aunt anxious, sister anxious, grandmother was anxious. There seems to be something that runs into the family, and perhaps it's abnormal functioning certain pathways in the brain. For the brain to feel comfortable, it has to have chemicals where one nerve cell talks to another nerve cell. And if you're low on those chemicals, it can be a biochemical reason why you feel anxious. Very small percentage of the anxiety, though. It can be drug-induced, such as prolonged uses of benzodiazepine. The most common benzodiazepine that you're aware of would be Xanax. And I have people come to my office and say, Doc, I need more Xanax. It doesn't seem to be working. Give me more and more drugs. Not realizing the drug may be the problem. Also, alcohol. Doc, if you had my job and had to come home to my wife, you'd need two good, strong belts when you got home, too. You know? It can be traumatic down here. That's called post-traumatic stress disorder, where something very traumatic happens in your life. And then the anniversary of that, every time it comes up, all those thoughts come back to your mind and you get very anxious about it. In this talk, we're not going to be talking about those things, although those things are real and they do happen. 
What I want to concentrate on is this part right here, the stressful events, things in your life which you perceive as stressful that overwhelm you and interfere with your functioning. Okay? So that's what we're going to talk about. Now you're going to say, well, aren't there several types of anxiety? Isn't there a good anxiety and a bad anxiety? I don't like the words good and bad. I prefer the words constructive and destructive. There is a constructive anxiety. It's getting late at night, you want to get home, the alley offers a shortcut to where you want to go, but it's dark should you stay to the well-lit road. Going down that aisle will cause anxiety for you, but that's good, it should. That's a little voice in your head that you should listen to. Maybe I shouldn't be doing it. So in this talk, we're not going to be talking about constructive anxiety. We're going to be talking about the destructive type. Philippians 4.6. My wife says, make sure I read the whole thing. I have a way of just reading part of it. So I've got to remember to read the whole things. This is what Roger taught about on Thursday night. And if you're not here on Thursday night and you didn't catch it, the lecture I'm giving is the companion piece to what Roger talked about. So make sure you go online and listen to it. It was very good, the things he had to say. Roger concentrated mostly on Thanksgiving. I'm going to concentrate mostly on the anxious part. In Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So since this is a word study, and the word is anxious, let's go to the Greek and see what the Greek says for anxious. And that's the Greek word. I listened to it enough to try and pronounce it, but I can't. It's like miramano, comes something close to that. But it has three things to it. The definition of anxiety, to be anxious. Got that, that's pretty easy. Second is to be troubled with cares. That makes sense with anxiety. And the last one is to seek to promote one's interest. The Greek word for anxiety means I'm seeking to promote my own interest. Well, now, wait a second. I thought that was what life was all about. Wasn't I put here on this earth to seek my own interest? Isn't that what everything is about that we do? And now it's telling me that that's part of anxiety. Well, if I'm not to seek my own interest, whose interest am I supposed to seek? Well since it's used in the scriptures, if it's not my interest, maybe I should be seeking to promote God's interest. And maybe if I spent more time promoting God's interest and less time in seeking my own interest, maybe I would be less anxious. So I'm going to give you some things that we're anxious about. Some of them may apply to you, some of them may not, but they're all pretty interesting. The first one is the anxiety of materialism. 3,000, 300,000. That's the number of articles, of things, in the average American household. If you own a house, you have about 300,000. I told my wife we are never moving. The reason we are never moving is I'm sure we have 500,000. Our kids move out. They don't take the stuff with them. You storm, Dad. I'll be back for them later. And that was 10 years ago. Three times in 50 years. What that means is the average house size has increased threefold in the last 50 years. The house you're living in now is probably three times larger than the house 50 years ago. 3.1%, that represents the percentage of children make up in the world. 
Children in the United States only make up 3.1% of the world's children, but they purchase 40% of the toys. I can't think of anything to get my grandchildren that they don't already have. It's impossible. 132,000, the average debt that the American carries. 16,000, the average debt that you have on your credit card. Does that make you anxious, carrying a debt on your credit card? How am I going to pay it off? And 40% of people have less than $1,000 in savings. That's going to make you anxious, doesn't it? So that's the anxiety of materialism. Ravi Zacharias, he's deceased now, one of the people I used to love to listen to and learn from. He said, I am absolutely convinced that meaninglessness does not, does not come from being weary of pain. It comes from being weary of pleasure. I read this biography of an Egyptian pharaoh who had everything that there was possible to have, and he said he counted up the happy days of his life, and they were three. Meaningless came from being weary of pleasure. But unfortunately, Ravi, as nice as he is, he didn't have the first one to have that idea. The author of Ecclesiastes, I've seen all of the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Same thing, different word. Are you striving after the wind? And is your striving after the wind causing more anxiety? Let's talk about gender identification. I'm told now that a child under the age of five, you should not buy gender-specific toys from. Don't buy dolls for the girls and cars for the boys. Buy gender-neutral terms, and by the time they're five years old, they have the right to choose their own gender. That's what your culture is teaching you. Does that make you feel anxious? The proper use of pronouns. Johnny has decided he was born XY, a male, decides at five years old he wants to be a little girl. And now, because I'm a teacher and I work in the school district, the school district has told me I have to refer to Johnny as she and her. Well, God made Johnny a certain way. If I'm referring to Johnny as she and her, am I telling God, God, you made a mistake? You made a mistake when you made Johnny a boy? And I could lose my job if I don't call Johnny a she and she. Does that make you anxious? Participation in sports. If I'm a male and I'm 30% stronger, 30% faster than a female, but now I gender identify as a female and I'm competing in sports with the girls and I'm smashing all the girls' records, as a parent, is that making me anxious? And what about gender dysphoria? Before I talk about gender dysphoria, let me explain about body dysphoria. Body dysphoria is when you have an imaginary defect in your body that you can't see, but you want corrected. The boy on the left side looks like an average teenage boy, but he had body dysphoria. He thought his body wasn't perfect, so he went through a series of operations to make himself look better. And this is what he ended up with, the right. I bet you a lot of people know who this is. This is Michael Jackson, body dysphoria. And gender dysphoria is when you identify yourself as a small child, as somebody of the opposite sex. And you say, therefore, since I identify differently, my body, which has sexual characteristics, I want to change that into the other sex. So you undergo hormones at a very young age, and you do surgeries to change your appearance. Does that bother you? Does that make you anxious that your society, culturally, is doing this to very small children? That's gender dysphoria. 
And what about anxiety? Do you have anxiety over death? What do all three of these churches have in common? Yeah, they all have cemeteries next to them. Before the beginning of the 20th century, all churches had cemeteries either next to them or you had to walk through the cemetery to get to the church. And it was a visual reminder to you that this life is only temporary and that you have to repent or perish. Do we have cemeteries like that? We've got a piece of land out back here. Should we tell Pastor Ben we want to turn it into a cemetery? How would you feel about walking through gravestones to get into the church? Would that cause anxiety? So what we do is we get rid of the graveyards because we don't want to feel that anxiety. And instead, we walk by the cappuccino machine. We walk by the potato chips and the cookies that we know we get to eat when we leave here. And that makes me feel good. And then I turn to somebody in their 20s and I call them a snowflake because they want to have a safe space in college that they can run and hide at. Well, who's the snowflake when I want to walk by a cappuccino machine and I don't want to walk by a gravesite? What about eco-anxiety? Anxiety over the doomsday of the world coming. National Institute of Health says that one-third of the children between 13 and 18 have a related anxiety disorder. Now, this isn't anxious about. This is an anxiety disorder, a level above that. And when you talk to them, what they worry about, number one and number two, is school shootings and suicide. And eco-anxiety comes back as number three. And what do we do as a society? We prayed out Greta Thunberg, 16 years old, from Sweden. We prayed her out in front of the United Nations, and she talks about how this generation is killing her generation. In 10 years, everyone's going to be dead. Everything's going to be flooded, vast deserts. Now, I'm not here to discuss whether or not there is a problem global warming. That's something you guys can discuss later. What I'm talking about is using our children's emotional health to drive home a point that we want to make politically. So we have a certain position politically, and it's okay to use the children as pawns in this and make them emotionally and anxiety suffer. Cultural appropriation, this guy's not Mexican. He has no right to wear this costume for Halloween. And the elephant in the room, COVID-19. Are you guys anxious about that? My understanding is at 11 o'clock, which has already started, Governor Inslee is supposed to have a conference about what's going to change with COVID. And some of the suggestions put forth is gatherings of no more than 200 people. And if you have a gathering at a church, it can only be one quarter of the size of the auditorium. Everybody has to wear masks, no worship group, one person can be singing, and the rest of you wearing masks, none of you are allowed to sing. Now, that may be what's coming down as we speak right now. Does that cause you to be anxious that the government can tell you how you're going to worship your God? I think in no other time in history do I remember all these things, and I've just scratched the surface here, of things that are making us anxious. The best book you can read about culture and how it's changing our society is this one here by Jonesson Street, A Practical Guide to Culture. It's one of the five best books I've ever read, excluding the Bible, okay? And so as he talks about it, he says, we are not just broken. It's bad enough if you were a broken people, but we're broken and rebellious. And that's what's getting us into all these problems. So is there a solution to this? The Surgeon General of the United States has commented that physically, 
Physically, anxiety has the same health effects as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. This is not just a mental. People get physically sick from all the anxiety. So is this the solution? Relax, just relax, as John would say. And if this isn't the solution, what is the solution? Well, let me offer some suggestions to you. Goat yoga. You have a goat stand on your back while you're doing different yoga routines. Okay, goat's not your thing. What about cow cuddling? $300 for a 90-minute solution. I just know that my uh, farmer friends are saying, boy, they saw those city people coming, didn't they? The next one's going to get me into trouble, so before you have a guttural reaction, let me explain it. What about emotional support animals? Are they the whole answer? This is an airplane, and we're used to seeing little dogs get on the airplanes with people. But big dogs, pigs, a horse, and I'm told the peacock didn't get on the plane. They kind of drew the line at the peacock. But the thing that's interesting to me is, look at this picture with the horse here. The interesting part to me wasn't the picture of the horse. is this traveling companion. Who's the traveling companion? It's a person. But the emotional support was coming from what? Doesn't that scare you? That we live in a society so built on culture and built on technology that we now are ignoring interpersonal relationships and we rely on a horse more than a person for our support. Well, let me, and before I get from here, now to get a support animal on an airplane, you have to have a doctor's prescription pad saying, yeah. So they come to me for those. Have I signed those for people? Yes, I've signed those for some people not for all people. So I do believe that emotional support animals do play a part. So don't send Ben any bad notes, okay? I do believe it, but I'm just putting things in perspective. We can't rely on animals for all of our emotional support here, okay? What about medications? You got a problem, take a pill. United States has 5% of the world's population, but uses 42% of prescription drugs. If it can't be fixed by a drug, it can't be fixed, right? Now, remember I talked about how some of it is genetics, right? Some of it does have altered chemical pathways, and some anxieties respond very favorably to medication. I give medication to people when that happens. You have an elder who is a pharmacist who fills that, hoping that I know what I'm doing when I sign it. So medications do have a role, but that's not what we're talking about here. Remember... I'm talking about the stress anxiety. But if you're on medication for anxiety, please don't stop it. You know, go talk to your doctor before you stop the medication. Okay, if these aren't good ways, what is a good way? And this is what I've come up with. Well, I'd say I've come up with. This is what my reading of the scriptures tell me might be a good way to work with anxiety. And it's through a series of invitation that Jesus gives you. And the invitations are come and see, come and drink, come and eat, come and rest, and come and inherit. And if you accept these invitations and you do them, I think you're in a much better place to face the anxiety. So let's take a look at each one of these. John 139, that's where you have your finger. Your finger's getting cramped. It's been there for a long time. Let's see what John 139 has to say. Now let's set this up. John the Baptist has been preaching about Jesus coming and said, one is coming, following me is much greater. I want you to follow him. So John the Baptist sees Jesus walking by and he goes, there he is, the lamb that's going to save the world. Two of John's disciples leave him, which was correct to do, to go follow Jesus. 
And Jesus, as he's walking down in verse 38, senses that they've joined him. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? Now, that's a double-fold meaning to that question. Do you seek something physical or are you seeking something spiritual? Okay, how do you want to spend the rest of your life? Do you want to spend it on a physical plane with materialism or do you want to spend it on a spiritual lane? And it's a rhetorical question. Jesus knows their answer. He's only asking the question to get them to think about their answer. And so they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Where are you going to take your mat and put it down for the night? Were they thinking spiritually or physically? They're thinking physically. Where's the mat? I don't see the house. Did they catch on to what he was saying? Nope. It went right over their head. Didn't even pick up on it. But Jesus, fortunately, is a God of second and third and fourth choices, and he doesn't just dismiss them. He said, okay, come with me. Come and watch the lessons and see if there's something more than physical. And so after meeting Jesus and spending time with him, they say down here in verse 41, we have found the Messiah. Messiah, is that a physical term or a spiritual term? It's spiritual. They have changed to where now they're not thinking in physical terms only, but they're thinking in spiritual terms. And so that's what come and see things. Come and see we're not about physical. We're about the spiritual. Second was come and drink. John 7, 37. Quickly turn over there. And in John 7, 37, it says that now on the last day of the great feast, what feast are they talking about? The feast of the tabernacle. That's the time when they celebrate wandering in the wilderness and then finally coming out of the wilderness. This is the last day, so they've made it out of the wilderness. They're celebrating going in the land of milk and honey. And there's something I want you to watch carefully here. It says, the last day of the great feast, Jesus stood. Now immediately that shouldn't catch your eye because how did rabbis teach? They taught sitting down. And they only stood when they really wanted to be emphatic about a point. Jesus is giving a lesson, and it has many points in it. But when he stands, this is the point, not a point he's trying to make. This is the whole point of what he was teaching them. So he stands, and he cries out in a loud voice. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Okay, are we talking spiritual or are we talking physical here? Is he talking about, come here and you can have some water? It's nice, cold, sparkling string. Or is he talking spiritually? And if he's speaking spiritually, what does he mean? Remember the woman at the well when Jesus approached her and said, I want a drink? She said, well, you don't have a bucket and the well's deep. What are you going to do? And he said, if you only understood the water I have, you will never be thirsty again. He's speaking spiritually to her, and he's speaking spiritually here as well. The well that you drink from that you'll never be thirsty is the Holy Spirit. He's talking about letting the Spirit into your life. Come to me, let the Spirit in. Now, got a problem there. What's the problem? The definition of anxiety is when you choose your own will, not somebody else's. When you let the Spirit in, guess what happens? It's out the window. No longer can you say, it's my will that I want. But when the Holy Spirit comes in, it's what God wants. And so that's what he's saying here. When you're matured enough to not think about yourself only, 
Come and drink of this water, and you'll never be thirsty again. Come and eat. John 21, 12. And in this, Jesus has died. He's been crucified, buried, and resurrected. He comes and he meets the disciples again. And they see him on the shore. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to question him or venture to question him. Who are you knowing that it was the Lord? So the Lord appears. And why did the Lord appear to him? For fellowship. We want to be with people that we can have fellowship with. That's the whole purpose of coming to church. And I'm very frightened with this COVID something that when it's over, that there are going to be a lot of people that don't come back to church, that are going to very, be very happy to sit on their couch, in their slippers, with their hot coffee, listen to this on tape, and think this is church. That is not church. It's only when you have the fellowship, and that's what Jesus was demonstrating, of being with people, can you say you had a church experience. So come and eat, come and have a meal on Thursday evenings. Before we have Thursday Bible study, we have a meal together. The fellowship, the koinonia. Come and rest, Mark 6.31, another invitation. So this is when the disciples had been following Jesus for a long time, and he kept a pretty busy schedule. And Jesus sent them out in twos. And then he had them come back and report what they have found. And it says in verse 631, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a special place and rest a while, for there were many people coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. Now, I'll bet you there are a lot of people out there that have a hard time saying no, that they volunteered for so many church programs that when the pastor says, can you do one more thing, they feel guilty if they don't say yes. Jesus is saying here, you've got to know your limits. There can only be so many things you can do. My wife wants to take on something different. I tell her, yeah, that's great. What are you going to give up? You can't do it all. Ben has approached me asking me to give a talk, and I've just been overwhelmed with this stuff in my life. When I've told him, no, Ben, I really can't do that, I feel anxious. I feel guilty for saying no to him because he's done so much for me. But there comes a time when you have to rest. So for those people who feel guilty about saying no, and I'm not talking about the person who doesn't want to do it and has plenty of time to do it. I'm talking to the person that just doesn't have that much left in the tank. Come and rest in God. Come and inherit, Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's not focus our eyes on what's here before us. Let's focus our eyes on something spiritual, which is coming, and that's eternity. You know, you've heard the saying, it's not important who's in the White House. It's important who's on the throne. And that's what this is referring to. It's not important what Inslee says. It's important what God says. So the invitation, come and see. Come and take a spiritual life not a physical life. Come and drink. Accept the Holy Spirit into your life. Realize it's not my will that's most important, but what God will. Join in fellowship with other people. Fellowship is important, but it goes both ways. My daughter gave me this t-shirt. It says, iron sharpens iron. You know what that means spiritually? It means you're not going to get better as a Christian 
unless you're around good, solid Christians yourself. That also puts a responsibility on you. If you're a mature Christian and somebody comes up to you and says, you know, brother, I've really been struggling here for a while. Could you meet me for coffee? Can we meet for breakfast? You have a responsibility to that person to sharpen their iron, to get them back to where they need to be with God. This is not the pastor's job. It is your job. Regeneration, take time to make sure that you have enough energy to finish the race good in eternity. So let's get back to where we were with Isaiah 35.4. Say to those with an anxious heart, those with anxiety, take courage, fear not. So is that the same as saying, relax, just relax? When I say take courage, does that mean just relax, calm down? When I say fear not, is that just relax? Do you think it takes courage to be in a spiritual life when your culture around you says something totally different? When you buck the culture that you live in and you say, no, it's not right that little boys can call themselves little girls. The scorn, the ridicule you're going to pick up from people, do you think that takes courage to say yes to a spiritual life? What about the Holy Spirit? When the Holy Spirit comes and says, you've got to put your desires behind mine, does that take courage to say, okay, I surrender all to you? What about fellowship? Does it take courage to love people that maybe you don't like too much, that you want to get to know those people you wouldn't normally get to know? Does it take courage to say, no, I can't do it right now. I'm just too overwhelmed. My anxiety and my burden level is just too high. Does it take courage when you tell your friends, I have my eyes in eternity, not what's here? When he says take courage, that's what he's talking about. It's not easy. It takes work and it takes maturity and it takes being a Christian for a while. It just doesn't happen. It isn't just relax. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in Germany during World War II. July 21st, 1944 was the date of his execution. The Allied forces were approaching and the prison that he was held in would be liberated in a day or two. But the Nazi regime didn't want him to live because they had a culture which was counter to Bonhoeffer. They had fascism and Nazism and there was no place in that culture for God and Bonhoeffer stood up against him. He could have fleed, he could have ran off, he could have went to England. Did he have courage to stand up and fight for his fellow Germans? I think he did. Was he filled with the Holy Spirit? It's said that when he went to his execution, he actually ran to the gallows because he was so excited to get to see Jesus. You think you can do that without the Holy Spirit? I think he explained he had the courage of the type that I'm trying to tell you about. In one of his statements, he said, it's only by living in this world that one learns to have faith. So if your idea of reducing your anxiety is, I'm just gonna go in my bedroom, pull up my sheets, hide under the covers, not watch the news anymore, not talk to anybody, and that's how I'm gonna reduce my anxiety. Bonhoeffer would disagree with that. Let me read the statement again. It's only by living in this world, in the time and the place and the culture that God has put you, can you learn to have faith? And why is it important to learn how to have faith? Hebrews 11:6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, big H, for he 
who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Last slide. Yes, we are saved from something. We are saved from sin. That's a given. We all know that. But not only are we saved from something, we are also saved for something. What are we saved for? It probably varies from individual to individual. Roger gets up and he shows these slides where it says we still need nursery workers. We need somebody to make cookies. We need somebody to clean up afterwards. And it actually hurts my heart every time I see that slide because I know that each one of you wasn't just saved from sin, God saved you for something. And that all of you have a responsibility, if you're a Christian, to use what God has saved you for. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, I'm just trying to get you to think beyond being saved from into thinking being saved for something. Go ahead and stand up and we'll close in order of prayer. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We just um, thank that you have given us a way to calm our anxieties and our fears. It does take courage, and we just pray that you'll send the Holy Spirit to mightily fill our lives so that we can have that courage that it takes to be that Bonhoeffer, to be that person that will stand up against the culture that's telling us things are wrong. We just ask that you'll help us be strong, and show us that if we are here for something, that you show us what we're here for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I don't want to just send you away with everything bad. There is some good news, and the good news when it comes to marriages, because of the COVID-19, divorce filings are down because we're spending more time together. 58% of 18 to 55-year-olds have reported a greater appreciation for their spouse that COVID is here. 51% a greater commitment. And only 8% said they have a weaker commitment to the spouse. I think part of that is we're forced to stay together. We're so used to, when trouble comes, to easily running away from the problem. Now we're forced to stay with the problem. Maybe we're forced to stay because financially we can't afford it. Maybe financially... We can, but the courts are closed, so we can't get a divorce. But it's forcing us to stay together, and that's forcing us to realize that we can make it through this.